Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm TCT Head of Content, Laura Griffiths, and for today's episode, I spoke to Olaf Deagle, Professor of Additive Manufacturing at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, who you'll most likely recognise for his renowned stylized 3D printed guitars. Throughout this episode, Deagle shares his thoughts on the importance of design for additive manufacturing, and why we're not using it nearly enough, combining engineering with creative thinking at the university's Creative Design and Additive Manufacturing Lab, and of course, those famous 3D printed guitars. Deagle will give a keynote presentation on design for additive manufacturing, understanding the value at the 2024 AMOG conference on Thursday the 14th of March. To attend, register for your conference pass at amog.com. For more additive insight, head over to tctmagazine.com to get your free print subscription and get the biggest 3D printing news stories of the week delivered straight to your inbox. So I always like to start off our Additive Insight podcast by asking our guests what was the light bulb moment into additive manufacturing. When did you first encounter it? Well, for me, it was actually probably early mid 90s. And that was back Mm -hmm. when I was just doing product development for companies around the world. I did a lot of lighting products, home health monitoring products. And Mm -hmm. back then it was just rapid prototyping. So we design a product. And before we spend $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 on tooling, we just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure we got it right. Um, at the time, I was based in New Zealand, but we had no uh, additive manufacturing systems at all in New Zealand. So I had to mm-hmm. email my files to Australia, and a week later, I'd get my parts back. But it did really change how we develop product, and it saved us a huge amount, amount of money. So... I mean, I guess for me, it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was sort of a a gradual dimming up of the lights over the next (laughs) 10 years. I just saw the technology getting better and better and sort of go beyond just prototyping. We could actually start to manufacture the real part to sell to the customer. Mm -hmm. And that really becomes a game changer. So that's when I became sort of, I guess, a true believer in additive beyond prototyping. Mm -hmm. So how long was it then until you actually got a more access to a more local 3D printer? Well, I actually bought the first FDM machine in New Zealand, probably in right, okay. the 90s, 94, 95. So I brought a Stratasys FDM machine here. And then from there, New Zealand started to grow really quickly and more and more people started to adopt. And then we got you know, more advanced you know, SLS machines and then metal mm-hmm. machines started to grow quite a bit in New Zealand. So it's grown a lot since those you know, early you know, 90s. Okay. And I know that, so we're here to talk about AMOG really, because you will be giving one of the keynote presentations there this year, which I'm very much looking forward to to hearing. And the kind of overarching theme of those keynote sessions is going to be um, the use of additive manufacturing in creative applications, creative markets. And I just wondered what kind of lessons do you think more industrial sectors might be able to gain from the kind of creative applications that we are seeing with additive? It's actually a really, really good question, and one I've got. I've got to be a little bit politically correct when I answer this one. I think, okay. Uh, as engineers, we're taught to think boring. Mm. You know, through our education, we're t- taught to think in a certain way on how we solve problems. We constantly think about can I manufacture it with conventional technologies, and mm. that really restricts us. And 
you know, again, to use a really, really bad stereotype, designers are the opposite way around. They don't think about whether it's possible or not. They just imagine it and then somehow create it and then leave it to the engineers to figure out, oh, how do we make this now? So, so you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. uh, but you, you can see how bringing those two worlds together, it makes engineers, it broadens how they approach problems, how they solve them. They come up with new creative ways of using things. And the same for the engineers, it, uh, for the designers, it actually brings them both worlds together. So I think there's a huge amount to learn between the two. Mm-hmm. And that kind of ties quite nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because a big theme of the presentation will be design for additive manufacturing or, or DFAM. Um, can you talk about why DFAM is so important then and kind of opening ourselves up to doing things a little bit differently, you know, in ways we wouldn't be able to do with more traditional means of manufacturing? Why is DFAM so important? And do you also think that at this stage that we're even exploiting DFAM enough and getting the most out of it? Not even close. I, I think okay. this is one of it's one of the big things that's largely missing from the additive manufacturing world. Now I'm biased because I'm a strong believer in DFAM, but today I'd say still 90% of the companies that come to us to print parts for them come up with blocks of steel, you know, really mm. boring traditional parts. And then they have a mild heart attack when we tell them what it's going to cost to print the way they've designed it. So, so it's you know, it's a bit of a catch-22, a vicious cycle, you know, because they don't design the part right, it becomes too expensive. And because it's too expensive, they say, oh, now additive manufacturing is a load of, you know, it's, it'll never work. It won't do the job I need. So, so it's, you know, it's that vicious cycle where they get into it and don't believe in AM. But once they start to design the right way, suddenly everything changes that you know the you can start to make parts that are affordable that add value to what you're doing and so on so it becomes it changes the way they think about additive in a big mm -hmm. way and you mentioned a really key point there costs with additive manufacturing and um ahead of speaking to you i went back and i watched another praise presentation that you gave i think it was last year and you're very much open about the fact that cost is quite a major factor in considering additive manufacturing it is a very expensive way of doing things there needs to be some kind of added value to make it worthwhile to make it a good choice um so i just wondered why do you think it is so important that we are realistic about the cost of additive manufacturing and do you think there are any sort of easy wins that we can look to maybe if we're just starting out in additive when it comes to to keeping costs low Look, look, I mean, I, I think the way I normally phrase it is that additive manufacturing, it's probably the most expensive way of making anything in the known universe. Uh, mm -hmm. It is. It's a really expensive technology and it's expensive largely because it's slow and mm -hmm. because it's expensive. You've got to add substantial value to make it worthwhile using an expensive technology. Um, and to me, look, I mean, you know, I think a lot of the companies are doing the right things where they're doing mission critical parts, airplane parts, medical parts and so on. But I think maybe the easy wins to my mind are maybe not doing the parts that you need, but the parts you want. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's almost I don't want to say luxury products, but I actually oh, I've got a, I've got a little example here. So I'm holding up a little 3D printed aluminium brake caliper. So it's for mountain mm -hmm. bikes, for, for biking. It's a sort of almost a dumb part. but cyclists are a great market because they spend crazy money on mountain bikes. Money is no object. This is, you know, it's about 45% lighter than a conventional brake caliper. And they perceive that as a huge advantage because it allows them to win the race. They don't mm -hmm. care what it costs. So, you know, that's an example of a good 
low hanging fruit that you can pick. Um, and it doesn't have quite the engineering requirements of a part that you're going to implant into the body or that's going to go on a on a on a satellite or a space mm. uh, spaceship, for example. So. Mm-hmm. The, the other example I use is, you know, when you look at automotive sector, most engineers jump on to the most critical parts, the hardest part, the, the suspension, for example. Whereas you look at the other 90% of the car, those are the easy parts where you can add a substantial <laughs> amount of value without having, look, we still have to do the hard engineering work, unquestionably. But it's just a way of thinking where maybe do the less difficult parts first, because that's a good way of making money from it. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, you can then move on to the other ones as well. And I do really want to talk to you about the guitars. Um, it's something that a lot of our listeners will very much recognise you for. Um, we've seen some absolutely amazing designs coming out of of, of your uh, company, making custom guitars with 3D printing. First of all, where did it start? But also, why get into making 3D printed guitars at all? Because talk about expense. That must be very expensive to do. <laughs> well, it is. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So. I mean, I've played music my whole life and, and I, I grew up playing clarinet, then trumpet, so, you know, all sorts of instruments. And mm-hmm. I think it was back in 2010, 2011, there was a store in The Economist called Print Me a Stradivarius, mm-hmm. where they basically catted up a Stradivarius. And I think EOS, one of the, the German companies, printed it and it sounded like a violin. And from my younger days playing music and then using 3D printing for prototyping, I saw this story and I said, wow, that's incredible. You know, could I make a guitar? Um, not a prototype, but an actual playable, workable instrument. Um, and I did my first one, I think it was 2011 when I did my first one. And I was blown away. It played as good as my other regular guitars. And mm-hmm. um, I did a blogs were still popular back then. So I did a blog and started getting emails from musicians around the world who'd never quite seen anything like that. This is when I say anything like that, I mean aesthetically, because with additive, I can make these complex geometries that would be impossible to make any other way. So aesthetically, these were something they'd never seen before. So they said, oh, can I buy one? So I scratched my head a bit and I sold one. I sold another one. I think right now I'm building, I've got three of them on the workbench at the moment. So that'll be number 114, 115 and 116. So wow. I wouldn't quite call it production, but you know, it, it, it's enough to keep me busy. And so like you say, you've produced well over 100 now. And from what I've seen, you've done them in a complete range of materials, too. You've seen metal ones, uh, polymers, um, you know, using a lot of like multi-material sort of printing as well. And then even printing in wood, too. Is there maybe like a dream project or material that you haven't explored yet within the, the guitars? I mean, my guitars are called solid body electric guitars. So, uh, again, politically incorrect statement, but it is a bit of a religion whether the the material of the electric guitar makes a difference to the sound of it. Yeah, yeah. On an on an acoustic guitar, absolutely yes. On a solid body electric, it makes very very little difference. So so the material is not that important. But where what excites me about additive is actually doing acoustic instruments and particularly wind instruments. Uh, you know, wind instruments, for example, you can sort of direct the wind to go over weird shaped cavity to mm-hmm. pr- produce really unique sounds. Or, uh, you know, one of my pet projects at some stage is to do a flute that can play chords because okay. you can split the wind, for example. And in fact, one we've just done, I think I've got one floating around here somewhere. We've been doing a lot of work for the local Maori people, the, the indigenous people of New Zealand. So that's a, what I'm holding in my hand is a conch shell trumpet. Okay. Um, so it's 
traditional. So this was actually the, the conch shell trumpet of one of the Maori elders at the University of Auckland. And it was a family heirloom that was sort of handed down from generation to generation. So the problem was he didn't want kids playing with it because mm. it's fragile. If they drop it, it's gone forever. And um, so we took his up to Auckland Hospital. They did a CT scan of it. Uh, the only way to capture all the internal spiral that goes through there is through medical imaging. So we did a CT scan of it. And um, from there, we printed it, plays the same, sounds the same. And now it's something that kids can play with. And from that, we then did a long one meter long wooden trumpet. Same process. We uh, scanned it, printed it out. We actually printed it out of plastic, out of nylon. Mm-hmm. But then I showed them the wooden guitar and they got really excited by that. They said, you know, could they use the shavings, the carvings, uh, initi- you know, when they carved the initial initial wood trumpet, could they use the shavings from that, turn them into sawdust and then print with the same wood as the original instrument? To, oh, I don't wow. know, try to, just try to retain the soul of the reproduction or yeah, so really, really interesting project. We haven't done it yet. I've told them, mm-hmm. yes, it can be done, uh, but we haven't quite done it yet. But that'll be a, a really fun project to work on, I think. Oh, wow, that sounds so cool. I, I do also want to talk to you as well about your role, because you are you are a professor of additive manufacturing at the University of Auckland. And I'm always interested in speaking to people about the topic of education and additive manufacturing, because whenever I speak to people within industry about the the main challenges, the main kind of barriers to more adoption of AM, it's always education. You know, we we need to educate people more, help people understand the benefits of additive, where it can be used. Can you talk about your approach to AM education at the university? Yeah, look, I mean, right now, I think around the world, most universities are now doing, call it, you know, why additive is beneficial. So I think everything's covering that. We've got a whole course now on design for additive manufacturing, and it's very much hands-on. To, to me, additive, it's not a theoretical topic. It's something you do, you, you learn by doing. Um, and, you know, once you've, you know, removed, you know, experienced the joy of support material removal and got bleeding hands from remo- removing metal supports, yes. <laughs> you, you really understand the value of why you design to minimize support. Um, mm-hmm. So within the course, we have three hands-on projects where the students have to design parts. We print the parts, do all the post-processing. So they really go through the gamut of plastic parts, metal parts, um, and sort of the, the the software, all the different software you've got to use to do additively manufactured parts. So, yeah, very much a hands-on approach to education for that. And we find it works really well and we get some incredible results from the students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important to recognise that it's not just printing, it's all the different ends of that entire process chain. Specialised software, there's, you know, all the software for topology optimization now for mm-hmm. automated design, for, um, you know, post-processing, for generating support, all of that you've got to learn. So there's a lot of, yeah, mm-hmm. things to learn. And I know that the the lab at the university is called the Creative Design and Additive Manufacturing Lab, and I found that quite interesting in itself because it's not very often that I see the two things intertwine creative and manufacturing and it, I, can, I guess it kind of goes back to the thing we we're talking about at the start and how those things work together so how do the two complement each other at the facility at the university? Well to my mind it's, it's all about thinking differently so to mm-hmm. me anything that makes you think differently makes you come up with good ideas and innovation so Ultimately, the, the the goal of the lab is to educate industry and get them to think innovatively about additive mm-hmm. manufacturing. So how it can be used in creative ways to add value to their uh, companies, for example. So it's, um, I guess that's the the mission of the lab, so to speak. Um, and it's one of those weird in 
areas. It's the only time I've seen true collaboration between an artist or a designer and an engineer and a scientist is you put a 3D printer between them. Now, before 3D printers, they would use each other, but not collaborate. You know, the, the again, stereotypes, the engineer would use the designer to make their design look pretty. And the, the, the designer would use the engineer to make sure the sculpture didn't fall over. Um, but you put a 3D printer between them and suddenly they have a common language and they actually really start to collaborate and exchange, influence each other's ideas, which you don't normally see. Um, so, you know, again, it's one of the roles of the lab is to bring the two disciplines together and try to get some interaction happening between them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a very different approach. And I also want to touch on something else that you just mentioned then about different um, modeling tools, different design tools, um, because I know that you will be looking at some of those tools in your presentation at AIMOG too. We've, we've really seen the growth of different tools like generative design software, implicit modeling, and, and now throw in more artificial intelligence options on top of that too. What kind of software developments are really interesting you at the minute or, or do you see as being quite promising at the moment? Uh, look, I, I think the AI is the space to watch unquestionably with the likes of ChatGPT and Dali and those. But so at the moment, uh, so we do a huge amount of what's currently called computational design. Uh, mm -hmm. It's using software like NTOP, Gen3D, Hyperganic, Leap7. There's, there's a lot of them out there now. Um, and they automate your design process. If you're designing you know, 20 products that are similar but slightly different, this can now automate the design. So a good example is if you're doing splints for hands where you can import your hand, draw mm. three lines, and in 30 seconds, you've got a splint ready to print. Um, so, But at the moment, to create that recipe, it's a manual process. And it takes you know, quite a bit of time to actually create that software automation. Imagine once you bring AI into it and the AI, you, know, you talk to your equivalent of chat GPT and say, I would like a workflow that does this. And it does create all of that for you automatically. That is going to be a serious game changer for the industry because, well, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say designers become obsolete. It's a different kind of design um, and it's something we need to be embracing and using and well, understanding, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And. Going back to specifically talking about design for additive manufacturing and, and, and I'm interested in the benefits that you can gain from it because there's so many different layers to design for additive manufacturing, you know, whether we want to talk about reducing weight or cost or, or consolidating parts, whatever it is. Do, do you have a, a kind of a number one top piece of DFAM advice that you would give out to someone exploring AM for the first time? Um, I guess probably two or three really, but my, my first one is get your hands three dirty. Three is fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, when I, when I say get your hands dirty, I'm amazed by how many academic students and company engineers have never actually operated a 3D printer in their life, yet they're designing for 3D printing or doing mm. research into 3D printing. So to, to me, that's a huge piece of advice there is, you know, actually go operate the machine. Salespeople from companies, you know, people sell machines and they've never actually operated their own machine. Or, or at the very least, um, go talk to the operator. You know, they've mm -hmm. got a huge amount of knowledge they've learned over the years. And it, again, it's amazing how many design engineers have never spoken to a machine operator. But I guess on a, on a practical design for AM side, I think you've mentioned the one is get rid of materials. So if material doesn't actually add 
engineering functionality or product, mm -hmm. get rid of it. Because that extra material is what costs the money, what takes the time. Um, and the other one, which is, again, the, the, the almost the cliche one, is designed to minimize post-processing. I think around 30 to 40 percent of the cost of your part is the work you do before and after. So if you can design to bring that down to 10 percent or 5 percent, you know, that's an immediate win. So those are the, the two easy bits of advice uh, for people who are getting into design for AEM. OK. And the last couple of questions I've got for you are more kind of general questions around the industry. One is. Is there one misconception about additive manufacturing that you wish you could just debunk and forget about right now? <laughs> but I, I mean, I suppose the, the simplest one of those is, you know, the, the, the idea that this is going to be the, 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 the one stop shop for manufacturing <laughs> and it's going to displace all other manufacturing. That's complete. It'll never happen. That's, to me, it's just another tool mm -hmm. and using it for the right reasons and in the right way is what'll make or break it. And I think that's why a lot of companies try out additive, but because they're not using it for the right reasons in the right way, they become disenchanted with it and put it in a cupboard and never look at it again. Yeah. Um, so so I, I think, you know, that's the reality of it is you've got to use it the right way, then you will start to see the value it adds. Um, yeah, so the big myth, it's never going to replace conventional manufacturing. It's going to sit us alongside it. You're going to go into the factory of the future and you're going to have a CNC machine, an injection molding machine, mm -hmm. a 3D printer all sitting side by side. And again, the trick for the engineer is when do I use which one? Mm -hmm. And I guess sticking with that, with that realism then, last year, you know, it was kind of a, kind of a turbulent in year for the industry, for the AM industry last year. What are your general feelings towards additive manufacturing as a whole going into 2024? Are you feeling optimistic? Are there any developments that you'll be looking out for? Anything that you maybe want to see happen in the next 12 months? Uh, look, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm feeling very optimistic. I, I'm fully expecting it to keep growing and adoption to keep in, in increasing. Um, I see all of the companies now are working on increasing the speed of their machines. Um, last year at Formnext and this year, I'm sure at AMUG, we're going to see a lot of large format printing, whether it's robot arm or gantry based. We're going to see more and more of that. So I fully expect it to call it mature. We're sort of in mm -hmm. that valley of death, slowly climbing up. And I think we're going to now start to see it mature. Um, I guess another interesting development, particularly over the last two years, is the low cost desktop 3D printers, particularly the mm -hmm. low cost resin printers with LCDs instead of a laser uh, solidifying it. They now, you know, for $300, you can buy a printer that puts our million dollar machines to shame in terms of print quality. Mm -hmm. um, that could become a game changer and if they're still used today for hobby use and that but you know the quality is amazing the resins are cheap for them um you know this is almost a, a word of warning to the big boys saying you know watch this mm -hmm. space because it is going to change the way certain companies approach additive manufacturing where instead of buying a half million or million dollar machines they might put together a bank of these low-cost lcd resin printers and yeah I, I said resin is not the the the, the the solution to everything, but it does do some nice jobs. And if you don't need powder bed fusion or material extrusion, it could be a good solution. Olaf, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us for the Additive Insight podcast. And I'm looking forward to seeing your keynote presentation at AMUG this year. Thank you very much, Laura. Absolute pleasure talking to you.